California Life Sciences Association, CLSA, is a 1,000-member trade association representing California's life science industry and was founded in 2015 when the Bay Area Bioscience Association, Bay Bio, and the California Healthcare Institute, CHI, merged. CLSA has been very active in the current discussions on Medicare pricing reform and finds itself at the center of the debate with the U.S. Congress regarding the announced plans to introduce international reference pricing for medicines. I'm joined today by two CLSA representatives, Bill Newell, the CEO of Sutro Biopharma, and the former CLSA board chair. Good uh, afternoon, Bill. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And Jenny Nieto, the CLSA's vice president of federal government relations and alliance development, who leads the organization's policy activities in D.C. Jenny, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Jenny, can you tell me a little bit about the history of CLSA? As you described in your opening, CLSA was formed five years ago with the merger of Bay Bio and CHI, and we now have a combined legacy of about 40 years between the two organizations. Our mission is to provide one unified voice for California's life sciences sector, and we work closely with industry, government, academia, and others to shape public policy, improve access to innovative technologies, and grow California's life sciences economy. Bill, you were the former chair. What areas do you see are really hot right now in biotech research, and what innovations should we expect to see? Dwayne, I think we're really uh, seeing the fruits of the genomic revolution that took place around the turn of the century. We're now able to actually get into a very personalized approach for medicines, in particular for cancer. We're able to do gene editing in a way that is unprecedented and perhaps reverse a root cause of certain diseases. So I'm very excited about the future potential of our industry to be able to make meaningful changes in people's lives. Diseases that were deadly, we think in the next 10 to 20 years, are diseases that we can turn into chronic diseases like cancer, diseases that have been intractable like Alzheimer's. We believe we may be driving towards ways in which we can actually reverse the causes of Alzheimer's. And also diseases that are due to genetic malformations, we believe we can actually get into the human body and transform the genes in order to allow those patients to live a normal life. It's been a great ride for the industry, but the next 20 to 25 years are going to be even more impactful. So how long was your term as CEO of CLSA? I was a board chair for several years, but I've been on the board for eight or nine. How do you think CLSA has helped you guys develop that pipeline? It's been a really important relationship for Sutro Biopharma. We've started as a very small company when I was first appointed uh, CEO of Sutro in 2009. We were 19 employees. As a small emerging company with a platform technology, CLSA was able to offer our company a number of benefits that allowed us to stretch our dollars. It's very difficult in this environment, in almost any environment, to raise money for a medicine that you aren't going to be able to deliver to a patient and sell to a patient for 10 to 15 years. And so it requires a great leap of faith for investors and their capital to invest in a company like Sutro. In 2003, our company was founded. In 2019, we now have three drugs, three novel cancer therapeutics in clinical development. We're going to have a fourth next year and a fifth either next year or the year thereafter. So that's a long time of waiting for us to start clinical development of novel cancer therapies, and we're still a long way away from commercial approval. We have collaborations with large pharmaceutical partners. We have three. One is with Merck, one is with Celgene, and one is with EMD Serono. We've raised from our collaboration partners 
over $350 million. And that allows us to work on programs that could lead to new therapeutics that they would ultimately be the party commercializing. Without that $350 million, Sucho wouldn't have three drugs in the clinic and two more that we can see coming down the pike. We might not even have one drug in the clinic. Our company might not even exist. I think that's a really important point because I think a lot of people don't understand how the industry is evolving. I still think they see it as sort of closed loop innovation like General Electric making light bulbs 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. What you have now is this open innovation system where big pharma is also working with small biotech to try and develop pipelines and commercial partnerships. And then they're acting as a commercialization agent. So you do have the big R&D spend, but you also have these working through partnerships and that's really a key part that I think a lot of people don't understand. It's a very integrated ecosystem. It used to be that, you know, little companies started and they were bootstrapping themselves along. And if they got lucky and got enough data, they could raise a little bit more money and then they have to get some more data and they could raise a little bit more money again. And it was a really hand to mouth existence. And in fact, in some countries outside of the United States, that hand to mouth existence is what the industry is forced to live with, whether it's Canada or the UK or Germany. You don't get the capital that you need to actually do something innovative and bold. We make drugs not in cells. We take a cell apart, we take the machinery, and we utilize that machinery in a way that is unique and allows us to make really novel molecules that other people in the industry cannot make the way that we do and that we think are going to transform cancer over time. But that's a very expensive proposition. And without investors who are willing to give us capital, and it's patient capital, that allow us to spend over three, five, seven years, both to develop our novel technology platform and then the drugs that are derived from that platform, our company wouldn't exist. And I could not have built our company in Canada. I could not have built it in the UK. I could not have built it in Germany because the capital markets there would not give me access to what we needed to do the job that we're doing. CLSA, Jenny, coming back to you, Mm -hmm. has taken a very vocal position about the current U.S. congressional proposals about price controls. And fundamentally, what we're talking about is cutting that liquidity that comes through the partnerships from the big companies. Why do you think it's so important for you folks, a very small biotech organization in one state, to sort of poke your head over the parapet and take a lot of flack because you're taking the point on this whole thing? Sure. Well, at the outset, I want to underscore our appreciation for the bicameral and bipartisan uh, process that is underway to make sure that patients are able to afford their needed uh, therapies. We think it is critically important that we address the drug pricing situation in the U.S. Unfortunately, we are very concerned about the policies that are on the table right now, like HR3. This is a critical challenge for our nation, but uh, we want to make sure that we're part of the solution to address it and not undermine innovation. We have a history of evidence-driven advocacy, and we felt it was really important in this case, to develop some data to show why we think this bill is so problematic for California innovators and patients. And uh, we're really hoping that our new study that has come out um, that you helped us with, that is going to be key to helping form the dialogue and the narrative with the delegation in particular about why California is so important in this debate and why, you know, we're going to engage in a meaningful way to try and advance good solutions. Dwayne, if I can follow up on that for a second, CLSA understands that Patients who have issues with access or patients who have issues with affordability are not getting the medicines that they need. So 
we are committed to making certain that there is access and affordability to all Americans. And the issues that we're dealing with in Washington do not really get to the heart of the problems of access and affordability. And we think that there are better solutions that are market-based that can really address those challenges. And we know that's difficult for people to believe in, but the reality is if you start to impose reference pricing that is based on price-controlled features in foreign countries on U.S. innovation, you're going to dry up pools of capital for companies like Sutro and others that are bringing us the next generation of medicines. And if you look at the spend that's been going on historically as a percentage of overall healthcare budget, the pharmaceutical spend is 13%, 12%, and it's been constant for 20 years. You know, my father just went through two knee replacements, and he got hit for $300,000, and no one complains about that. We're not talking about the healthcare budget. It seems like we're focused, we're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable here. We're focusing on the wrong part of the value chain. Why do you think there's so much emphasis on the drug price alone and we're not looking at the overall value chain? I can't remember who said this, but it's, it's certainly, oh yeah, our president said this. Uh, healthcare, who knew it was really complicated? <laughs> you know, uh, our healthcare system is got many different parts to it. Um, some of it is certainly the medicines that we produce, but there are all uh, a host of other uh, actors and players uh, in the delivery of healthcare in the United States, and it is a complex, interwoven, not probably uh, optimally designed uh, mechanism. But the one thing that people can point to is going to the pharmacy counter getting their prescription, and then seeing how much they have to pay out of pocket and having to decide whether or not that medicine is worth that cost to them at that point in time. I think that is an easy target. If you go to a hospital for a procedure, and if it's an involuntary procedure, you don't actually get a chance to shop around. You're there, and they're going to take care of you. And then the bill comes, and you you have to deal with the consequences. But when you go to the pharmacy counter, you're choosing to take your medicine. The way the system is designed, the patients who are neediest and who can least afford the copay are not the ones who are given assistance in that regard that is sufficient. And that becomes a political problem then. And that becomes a political problem. And we can't have a policy debate where we're actually looking at what is in the best interest of patients and our country when politics are inflaming passions. Now, Jenny, you mentioned we've been working with you on an impact assessment. We did some math, quite a bit of math, on the proposals that were coming out of the U.S. Congress House Ways and Means Committee. And we priced the impact of this as about 50% of net revenue EBIT on the 25 companies that are going to be impacted by Medicare Part D. There's been a lot of media uptake. Are you surprised how much support or at least media coverage you've been getting on this? I'm actually not that surprised because I think we are one of the only, if not the only, uh, organization um, and with your support that has actually done an analysis of what the potential impact um, could be on revenue um, under this proposal. And one of the reasons that this was so important for us to do was because California is, is the global leader in innovation and we're very concerned by what these proposals, what international reference pricing is going to do to the entire uh, global market, and it's all going to come to roost uh, right in California in our backyard. $125 billion mm-hmm. a year for the industry, that's $1.2 trillion over 10 years. Bill, we're looking at cuts, 58-60%, that's $72 billion a year. What would that impact have on your company if that kind of liquidity was cut? 
Uh, I'd be nervous for the future of our, our company, and any investor in a biotech company should be nervous about the future for that company. The reason our industry is so vibrant and so successful and the world's leader in innovation is that we have access to very skilled researchers. We have access to capital that is unprecedented. And we get that capital in two ways. We have investors who are willing to put their money at risk well before, years before, they have an opportunity to see any return because the medicine hasn't been sold for many years after they've made their investment. And secondly, we rely in this ecosystem on a relationship between the smaller companies and the larger companies. Smaller companies do a lot of the innovation in our industry. And in fact, in many companies, more than 50% of their emerging product pipeline come from smaller companies, not from their internal research and development efforts, regardless of how much they spend. And so what they know is they need to provide capital if they're going to access some of these novel medicines in the future. And if they suffer huge losses uh, in revenue and they have to then compensate by reducing their expenses, the employee base, sure, that can be downsized a little bit, but those are their people. Your collaborator is not their people. Right. Your collaborator is somebody who you hope will ultimately bring you something, but you're, uh, you know, you're a third party. Arm's length, expendable. Arm's length and expendable and easy to say, okay, that's done. We're not going to fund you anymore. When you start losing investment from the biopharmaceutical industry to the smaller companies, you see investors in the capital markets looking at us wondering, will you ever get all the money you need to go this 12 to 15 year route to get your novel idea to market. And if that becomes less likely, then they're gonna make some very rational business decisions about where they're going to be investing. I don't have to invest in biotech, I can just go down the street and invest in tech, at least here in California. And that's their self-interested decision and that's the way our free market is set up. So it's, we built a system that really is very interdependent And I think what's being missed in Washington is the impact on the companies who are not selling drugs. Mm -hmm. Sutro will have been founded and was founded in 2003. And if we have our first drug on the market in 2023, which by the way, I don't project we will, it'll be after that. It'll have been 20 (laughs) years since we were founded. That's not official forward-looking statement for the SEC. (laughs) If anyone's listening, that's fine. (laughs) But you know, my, my point is we're working in a space that is very difficult, but we have some of the best tools. We have some of the best understanding of biology that we've ever had. And we have new ways to make medicines that we didn't have 25 years ago. And if we're going to realize the benefit of all of that investment, then we actually need to find ways not to destroy the ecosystem that exists. I'd like to just point out a couple things about California that we stumbled on in the course of our research and ask you a few questions. The first thing I want to talk about of the 65 drugs that came to market from the investment of those big pharma companies through Medicare Part D, over half, 33, were from California. I'd like to talk about the success rate. If you look at California, you put 109 companies had products investable from big pharma. Of that 109, 33 came to market. Again, that's a 30% hit rate. The industry average is 
10%. That's a 30% hit rate. I'd like to talk about the funding of California. We found roughly $300 billion had come from those Medicare D companies, specifically into the U.S. 331 deals. Of that $300 billion, California is almost half of the total revenue, $140 billion. California is incredibly dominant in biotech, far more than even I assumed. Why? Jenny, why is that? I think we have some very special factors here in our state. First of all, being one of the earliest uh, places for biotechnology in the in the world. But with the various resources around us, um, with the strongest academic institutions, with private and not-for-profit institutions in the state, with incredible access to VC funding and established companies, there's just a wonderful ecosystem that is already established here in California. And interestingly, when we've talked to our colleagues at other states, state organizations like ours across the country, everyone wants to be like California. They want <laughs> they want what we have here. And in order for them to be able to do that, they need to have the same special sauce, the same special ingredients in the same ecosystem. They're very concerned about what proposals like this are going to do to their own ability to attract new investment and growth in their states. We actually led a multi-state life sciences association letter that was ultimately co-signed by 44 different or state and regional organizations from across the country, from 41 different states and territories. And they all pointed to this bill as being very problematic for them from established states like California, Massachusetts, New Jersey, North Carolina, right down to Kansas, North Dakota, Montana. Those states are trying to attract and build an economic engine like we have in California. And they know they're not going to be able to do it if these types of policies go into effect. Wayne, I'm a fourth generation Californian. So let me add my own (laughs) little spin uh, on this as well. I think California for years has had a reputation of risk-taking as a state. It's uh, literally, I feel it's a part of the culture of the people out here. When you think back to the evolution of Silicon Valley, uh, that was huge risk that was being taken. Capital was being put uh, at risk. People were putting their careers at risk. And look where that development has altered the world in many fundamental ways. South San Francisco is rightfully known as the birthplace of biotechnology. We got that because we had tremendous science. We had an appetite for risk. We had venture capitalists who were growing up in the Silicon Valley Bay Area who were prepared to put capital at risk and were not afraid to go out and fail. In other parts of the world, Failure is a real black mark on your resume, and so you're not incentivized to take risk. And I think we take risk more often, we fail more often, we learn from that risk more often, and then we can make sure that we avoid making those same mistakes again. We've got venture capital, we have great academic universities, we have scientists who are some of the best in the world, and we understand how to balance risk and innovation in a way that I think sets California apart. Do you see venture capital moving away from the tech unicorn area to more of the biotech space? You know, over the last, uh, I would say, five to six years, there's certainly been a lot more inflows of venture capital into the biotechnology sector. I'm very much afraid that if we continue down the path that reference pricing is something that could become the law of the land, that those uh, resources will dry up and that, in fact, 
instead of moving from tech to biotech investing, they'll go back, abandon their biotech, and go back to investing in tech. In 2008, uh, as the recession hit, there was a contraction in the uh, industry of, from a financial perspective, and it was very difficult to be able to find any financing at all. And as a result, what you saw was less innovation, less company growth, and it was, it was a scary time for our industry. Do you see that potentially happening again with these cuts? I'm extremely nervous about that. There is so much capital that is required to develop a novel medicine. You know, when we think about um, diseases like Alzheimer's, our industry has been working diligently for a number of years to try and understand what causes Alzheimer's and how can we intervene to either stop the progression of the disease or even better, reverse the disease. There have been countless studies that have been uh, performed on countless molecules and nothing has worked. 265 failures in a row and counting right now. And a lot of those trials have been five, 10 year trials, billion dollar trials. Right. And so how do you incentivize people to put that money at risk for a very important health issue for our society? If you all of a sudden say to them, well, if you get something, you know, we're going to look at uh, the price that that medicine is charged in some foreign country and they choose to cap their spending on health care for their patient populations. But that results in their local industries not having the capital to invest in those medicines. And if it's a vicious cycle abroad, and if that cycle gets imported into the United States, we won't continue to go after Alzheimer's. That is too big a mountain, it costs too much money, and the return is too speculative in an environment where you can't earn a proper return for actually combating a very disastrous disease. Obviously, Alzheimer's is the tip of the mountain. That's the, the vanguard of the difficulty, but Parkinson's goes into that realm Absolutely. as well. Any of the neurological disorders, which are now looks like they're becoming personalized, that's going to be really difficult and very, very challenging research. These are patients who have access to nothing, Yeah, and they are a tremendous burden on our healthcare system. The cost of treating a patient versus the cost of preventing disease Night and day. Oh, yes. And if you look at Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, one of the largest costs in Duchenne's is the fact a parent usually has to leave the workforce and then attend to the child for 10 years. I mean, again, that's an enormous economic drain on society. Huge. Absolutely, it is. Tygenics had started off as a spin out of KU Leuven University in Belgium very successfully, the first stem cell technology under the advanced therapies regime of the European Commission. And basically, they could not commercialize in Europe. They did not make enough money. They only had $4 million in sales the final year. So they had to actually do a secondary IPO in the U.S., completely change their pipeline. 70% of biotech assets now globally are moving to the United States. Why do people want to relocate their company from their home to the United States? Because they can't get the capital that they need to properly grow their company because and they pursue their to. science. Because they have to. They do it because yeah. they have to. They don't have any other choice. Because their home environment is not hospitable. And if we recreate those foreign home environments here in the United States and de-incentivize companies, we will lose innovation without doubt. There will be no place in the United States that you will want to go. Maybe another country, maybe it'll be China, that will say, 
the U.S. doesn't want you, come, you know, develop your new medicines in China. I can't think of a more disastrous outcome for our company than for us to take all of the efforts that are being put in the United States and have them move to China because capital was available in China when it wasn't available in the United States. What do you remember saying about this, Jenny? Are they concerned about the fact that, you know, they see we have a huge competitive advantage and we're going to throw it away? Absolutely. They're very, very concerned. And I, I think that, you know, for an organization like CLSA, the biopharmaceutical sector is incredibly represented in our membership, but the other sector Sectors, um, medical devices, diagnostics, I think they're also looking at this and being very concerned. Because if you can't innovate new therapies for patients, um, or if you can't attract capital in one segment of the sector, they're looking at this like whatever is happening over here is going to trickle into their sector as well. And if for a diagnostics company, for example, that's trying to develop a new way of detecting cancer early, if there's no therapies eventually down the line for those patients, there's not going to be any reason for them to actually diagnose a patient and tell them, well, congratulations, you have cancer, we can't help you. Now, you've been speaking very closely to a lot of the congressional staff. A lot of them are Democrats in Washington. What have they been saying about this? I think you're both presenting very strong cases that are backed up with evidence. What's the reaction you're getting? The members of the delegation are very... Many of them are very strong champions for the life sciences sector. They're very proud of the innovation of the jobs, the research that's going on in their state. I think they're faced with a very significant challenge, and that is that they're hearing from their constituents, patients, that they can't afford their drugs. They are aware that they are potentially the drugs that they need to take are available in other countries cheaper, and they want the same prices. And I think this is a very simplistic intended solution for that problem, but they're losing sight of the larger global picture of what this type of policy of importing foreign price controls into the American economy and what that's really going to do. There has been some interest in the study and actually seeing real data that shows this is not chicken little. The sky actually could fall. We could be dismantling a really nascent industry, 40-year industry, with this one piece of legislation. I don't think there is a strategy yet for how they can get past this particular proposal, but we will see what happens when the bill comes to the floor in the House for a vote. And then my hope is that our members um, in our delegation in the House and the Senate, the bipartisan way that they can move this forward, Democrats, Republicans, I think that we're hopeful that they can find a a way to do that going forward that's going to be meaningful for patients, but is also going to protect the innovation that's happening in their state. Now, Bill, one of the things we were talking about before we started was the orphan drug legislation and the fact that science is leading us to more targeted indications. It's just the way it is. You know, it's really been fascinating for me to watch the evolution of the orphan drug industry in the United States. Uh, Congress created incentives for companies to go after small patient populations. In 1984, right. mm-hmm. legislation was passed. Exactly. And the, those incentives actually created an industry that didn't exist. So they got it right at that point in time. We've been able to tackle diseases that no one would spend any time on because there just wasn't the economic incentive to do so. And frankly, the more we understand about disease pathology, the more we come to understand that diseases that we would call very homogeneous years ago 
we now are, understand are very heterogeneous. Sure. And years ago, what we used to do is think it was all homogeneous, make a medicine, deliver it to the patient, and it worked in half of the patients. It worked in 40% of the patients. And then the rest of them, because we didn't understand it was really heterogeneous, it didn't work. So the more we understand about disease pathology and the heterogeneity of disease, the more our research drives to making a medicine that is right for you because you're the right candidate for the medicine, but not right for your neighbor because it's a different disease in that person. This is a very targeted approach. It's actually the essence of personalized medicine is where we're moving forward uh, with our industry. And what that means is we're going to have fewer drugs that we sell to hundreds of millions of people. And therefore, we need to be better at making the drugs. And we need to understand that instead of one drug that deals with this disease, we're going to have to have six or seven. But the patients who get one of those six or seven because it's targeted to them will have a better outcome. And that means globally a reduction in the cost of health care to our society. And that's a benefit. But the drug price will go up. And these are exactly the kind of drugs that would be cut if we lose 60% of our revenue. There is no question that, you know, when you're working on a smaller market, you don't have a cheaper pathway <laughs> to developing your drug. Correct. So the only way that it makes sense from an investment standpoint is that you are charging more for that medicine because it doesn't cost you any less, even if the market is one third of what it would have been 15 years ago. It doesn't cost you any less to make that new medicine. It doesn't make it any less risky to make that new medicine. And so as a consequence, I think people are losing sight when they talk about price of the value and the societal value of these medicines. At the end of the day, healthcare costs are uh, significant in the United States. If we can find ways through medicine to keep people out of the hospital, keep them from needing urgent care, then we reduce the overall health cost burden in our country and the cost of the medicine is a value add, not a problem to be dealt with. And the ultimate example is Savaldi. You know, was a problem child three years ago, but yep. in fact, it saved three times the cost that it actually cost in the pill. It was a cure 99% of the time. Exactly. And it's a little bit, there is a certain amount of perversity in the insurance and reimbursement system where insurance companies don't want to pay for the cost of a cure because that patient won't give them a premium next year. They might be <laughs> on another plan. So um, I'm not saying our system is perfect. Uh, I am saying that we need to dance delicately in this area. Access and affordability are things that we are completely focused on, but let's do it in a responsible way where we don't kill innovation. Jenny, where do you see CLSA in three to five years? In what three do you, to five years. What do you think is going to happen? As long as we can prevent bills and proposals like HR3 from going into effect, I mean, I, I still see California as leading the nation, leading the world in innovation. Um, I know from meeting with so many of our member organizations, the exciting cutting edge science and research that they're doing, I think we're going to continue to be, our state is going to continue to be a global powerhouse in innovation if we can make sure that the right policies are in place. Bill, your company, what do you see happening in three to five years? You know, I'm thrilled that we have three drugs in the clinic and a couple more on the way. We've got some great partnerships. Uh, as long as I have access, continuing access to capital, we're going to continue to innovate and we're going to continue to develop through research and then clinical development, new therapeutics for cancer. If we don't have access to capital, 
I'm going to have to consolidate my clinical trials. I'm going to have to decide which of my children I get to send <laughs> to college and which are going to, you know, sit at home and play video games, uh, in effect. Um, in a world where the resources that are presently available to you suddenly dry up, you have to make some very difficult decisions, and that will mean leaving drugs that could be beneficial to cancer patients undeveloped, and that would be a disaster. Jenny, Bill, thank you very much for your time. It's been great speaking thank to you. you. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you.